The subject for this evening's talk is between birth and death. Sometimes, through the circumstances of life, we have the necessary opportunity to be able to stand back and take a, a full and hopefully clear look at our existence. And as human beings, we have this capacity, and sometimes this capacity comes to us meditatively, it comes to us spontaneously, and one steps back and it gives an opportunity for the very movement of our life between birth and death to fall into some kind of perspective. And we sometimes notice that this sudden awareness of life, of the movement, of the confinement of it, is triggered by a particular circumstance. And there perhaps have been occasions in the course of your life and in my life where or when something has, has happened and it stopped us. It stopped us in our tracks. And we were moving through life day in, day out in a certain habit and cycle and there has been a circumstance which has forced us into questioning. It may have come out of a conversation. It may have come out of a uh, bereavement. It may have come out of just a sudden and unexpected thought or circumstance in our life. And suddenly, in that very moment or moments of that, we couldn't take anything for granted about who we are, who we were, what we are doing with our life and where it in fact is going. And in that moment or in such moments of our attention being arrested in the moment, it's not only what we do with our life that matters and the way that we live, but all the decisions which flow out from that. And as the story which was said two and a half thousand years ago of one young man in this very area who began to explore these teachings and in the exploration of them he was asked by his uh, friends, why don't you do what, that which is your duty? Why don't you do that which is your duty? And your duty is to follow through with your education, to continue in that line of work which has been given to you by your parents,
from one generation to another and, and therefore to keep that going and then in the latter period of your life when you have fulfilled your duty in work, fulfilled your duty in becoming uh, a parent and continued the uh, generation of families and name then, then later on in life that will be the time for reflection, for spiritual matters, for all of these contemplations and so forth. And sometimes, not only two and a half thousand years ago, of course, but still, people still do receive from their friends and their parents the same message today. And this young man's comment two and a half thousand years ago was a, a cutting and telling statement. He said, I have looked at this society, I have looked at the force of this desire, the wanting and the ego and the accumulating and all that goes with it, and he said, and I don't want to live like that. That was all. I don't want to live like that. And some, and some of us here in this very room this evening, we have looked and we have asked and we have wondered and we have seen the effects of certain ways of living and the force of desire running through certain ways of li living and we have said to ourselves and we say to each other and you hear from me this evening and others I don't want to live like that But of course, it's unlikely that a single statement made in the affirmative, a single statement uttered out of our mouths, no matter how much conviction there is in the moment about such statements, that it itself will have the power and the authority from inside of us to actually make such a difference that we don't live like that. And one can never underestimate in this world of greed and fear and selfishness and, and desire and uh, obsessing with self-interest. One can never underestimate the potency upon consciousness of conditions around which sometimes are like a magnet. And I know one of my uh, uh, teachers, he, when speaking of these very same matters, would have act in his uh, hands and would put out a display of small magnets. And he would just show how human beings, he would make up um, some models around, and how hum human beings, like a, a magnet, they, we think we are free, we think we are not attached, etc. and move slowly but surely closer and closer and the very magnetism of things, the very pull, the potency of attraction towards things sucks the whole life away from a human being. And we sometimes we hear, as I have heard many times over the years from people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. My life has gone by. 
I have reached this point in my life and I ask myself, what have I done with it? Whatever happened to it? And I'd very easily and understandably, I feel, this pull upon human beings and one's life is swallowed, gone. Gone into that which one's deep down one never had any heart for. And sometimes people on these retreats and in such situations as this may not realize the significance of the occasion. Nothing to do with Christopher the teacher, nothing to do with the Thai monastery or that we're five minutes walk away from uh, the Bodhi tree and the long two and a half thousand years of tradition of men and women sitting here in this area as they have done for previous generations. Not, not, I'm not talking about any of that. But as I say, it, that sometimes one just doesn't realize the significance of the occasion. Of the occasion for the potential and the possibility of a release into some other way of being which is genuinely authoritatively nourishing, fulfilling, and really serves the deeper interests of this earth. It's as though sometimes in meditations, in sitting and walking, and in the silence of things, it's as though sometimes we're on the very brink of something mystical, and um, wondrous and all the potential that comes out of it we're right on the edge of it and it's like it's there and then suddenly it fades not so long ago last year I think it was a person came to sit the retreat with me and as people do say to me sometimes, oh, Christopher, do you remember me? I don't remember everybody that sits on the re retreat, and I'm sure it goes two ways as well. And he said, I, and I had said, well, I have a, in this case, I had a vague memory. And I said, wasn't it in Budgaya a couple of years ago or so? And he said, no, it was in 1982 in uh, Budgaya. And, and then I said to him, what happened after those days that you were in Budgaya? And he said, well, I listened to the teachings that you were uh, giving each day and hearing you speak on the ultimate uh, truth of existence. And I left this retreat and I honestly believed that I was a liberated uh, human being, that that which was sleeping inside of me uh, had uh, awoken, had awakened, and I really felt that I understood the very essence of what you were speaking about uh, each evening. Uh, it, it penetrated through to me. He then said, then I continued my traveling, still feeling and sensing that, and then I went back to uh, the West, I still didn't feel that I had lost that essential t 
teaching that was being uh, given in the Dharma Hall night after night. But then he said, very gradually, in the course of time, I began to get a little bit more identified. Things which were going on around me began to matter a little bit more. I began to take a bit more interest in having a bit more money, a few more possessions, getting uh, um, my job together. He said, first I had no interest in things like alcohol and drugs. What, who, what free human being uh, needs any of that for any kind of stimulation? But then he said, I, I began to notice I would go to a little bit more into that. And the time went by, and he said, and within two or three years, he told me, of arriving back in the West, he said, he suddenly realized he was right back where he had started. And as though he had come full circle, that the very reason for leaving the West and moving out of its its sphere of influence to explore spiritual teachings. He had done that. He had returned to the, to the West. And then in the course of time, he was once again back where he was. What on earth happened to that consciousness? I say, these instances here, these days here, are more precious than the form, than the tradition than the teacher, than the circumstances. And they have the potential to have a deep running thread right through one's whole existence so that one knows that the preciousness of human life and the preciousness of human birth isn't becoming wasted on clinging and possessiveness and fear and greed. So he found himself back in a retreat, looking all over again, exploring and looking into things all over again, hearing the teachings all over again to awaken that which was waking, what he felt was waking up, once again, tragically, insidiously had fallen asleep. Sometimes we look at our life and the life that we persist around us and everyday mind will say of everyday life there are lots of people in this world there are lots of things in this world some of what I see and some of what I uh, notice I like and some I dislike and what I like and what I dislike is that which matters what I like and what I dislike is that which matters and it could seem that that the, between the two poles of birth and death it's a movement of likes and dislikes one could even describe life for some as nothing but living in and out of likes and dislikes and sometimes in that movement of the likes and dislikes which takes place, there's some moments in which one breaks through those likes and dislikes 
And something else is at least in potential. And instead of the world being so fixed as people and things, something else, some other vibration, begins to open up one's life. And meditation has that duty. It has that responsibility. So when we are engaged in here, in sitting and walking, it might be, for much of the time, in these periods, it feels very ordinary. I'm just sitting here, being present, nothing special is happening whatsoever. Just another day, another meditation period, another moment in my life. And the general feeling and tone that one has is, so what? So what? So what? Yet sometimes, for some people, in that period of sitting and walking, the sense of the solidity of bodily life actually isn't quite as solid as we imagine. And sometimes you have noticed, some of you, that when you are sitting and you're feeling the backside's contact with the cushion, the vibration th that's occurring through the body, it seems like this so-called imagined defined area of the body is not as solid as it seems. And this losing some of the solidity of the body and experiencing the vibration of the body has the potential to vibrate open heart and mind. The very vibration of the body and the be and the accessibility to that vibration opens up the heart and mind and there is no limitation to the potential of that opening up. Could it open up so much it accommodates birth and death? Could it open so much that there is no fear of old age, there is no fear of sickness, there is no fear of dying, there is no fear of the last breath because something has opened up so much, which unlike that young man who's, who was, was in the process of opening up and the con spiritual conceit came in and said, I have fully awakened up, deceived himself only to find in the course of time that it closed down again and he was back asleep where he was when he left his homeland. Can that opening up take place through this process, take place, so there is an opening and there is never a closing down again? It's not even possible. So sometimes we are engaged in the sitting process, sometimes we're engaged in the listening process, sometimes we're engaged in the walking process, or just in the very nature of a receptive and caring and attentive day. And that opening up, as some of you have been speaking in different ways during the days here, that opening up begins to take place, and as I say, some of the solidity of things, of life, and all the separation which accompanies it doesn't seem quite as true, quite as real as we had been saying and thinking and imagining the whole life. 
Sometimes in that going deeper into ourselves and in that opening up which takes place, there may be moments of a certain spaciousness. This spaciousness has its own uh, mysterious tremendum to it. It's a, it's, it's a whisper of something other. And sometimes when you are walking, sitting, being in the day, listening to the evening talk, whatever it, taking the food, whatever it might be, and sometimes there is a spaciousness there, and the quality of that spaciousness is that the thought says something to us. Not a, an intellectual or an abstract thought, but a thought or a reflection says, actually, there is nothing that I want from this world. I desire nothing of life. I want nothing from nobody, nothing from things, nothing that I have to pursue, I have to gravitate towards, I have to get and add to myself, so to speak, at all. And sometimes in that spaciousness, the, the, the whole being is, is in a state of not wanting. Not wanting for anything on this whole earth above and below it. And we say, that moment, that experience, that seeing, in that moment, there is a spaciousness there. The very not wanting of life, the not demanding of life, opens the life out to something bigger. And it's a very poor human being who thinks, by getting certain things from life, he and she will be richer by it. The pursuit of things in life keeps the person in poverty. So sometimes there's just a day. We don't have any authority figures around us. We don't have any belief systems around us. We don't have any religions around us. We don't have any ideas around us. We don't have any pressure around us or whatever. There's none of that going on and there's a certain spaciousness, and that spaciousness is so sweetly undemanding of life. Would I dare allow naturally, organically, the whole being to, without will and desire and effort, to move deeply into that spaciousness which asks nothing of anybody or anything, not even of oneself? Sometimes in our relationship to bodily life, the vibration of life, so precious, spoken of so much for thousands, thousands of years. But in this experience of the, the vibration of life and that spaciousness of life, which is again the birthright of humanity, that in, the, in that spaciousness, at time, it seems with remarkable speed, that spaciousness that one has touched gets filled up. It's almost the experience that there is a spaciousness and then suddenly and often within 24 hours, within a day or two, that spaciousness, there is a contraction taking place. 
and the, and the formations of emotion, the formations of thoughts, the formations of ideas come in at an accelerated speed and one says to oneself, gosh, just yesterday, just earlier on today I was feeling so much more spacious with, around life, so much more spacious and content with things, I wasn't asking of anything and now I'm just completely caught up in all this, whatever it is. What happened to my spaciousness? Sometimes it seems like we're in the cruel situation of human existence. It's like, a, like as though life has inflicted a cruelty upon us, which says to us, life says to us, I'll give you this. I'll give you this spaciousness and this depth and, and contentment. It will only be short-lived because within a few moments or a day or two, something else is going to come back and... and that spaciousness will be so far away from you because you'll be right there in the midst of some stuff. <laughs> and how come it seems that the two somehow sometimes seem to be working so close together? And we say to ourselves, I want to be free of all this stuff, I don't want all these issues going on in my life, I want to see all of this dissolve and go away. And then we notice the willpower moving in, trying to get rid of. Trying to get rid of. And the very trying to get rid of, in fact, impounds on it. The very movement says, this must go solidifies the very thing I wish to dissolve. We think through resistance there is dissolution. Spaciousness makes such a demand on human existence that the spaciousness is such. Can this spaciousness actually accommodate this stuff? Can I say when there is some in the facing of one's existence and there's something going on inside of us and every thought in the cell says, I wish this was not in my life. But in the very thick of all of that, one says, this is one's life and it's okay. Because it's the truth of the moment and the truth of the moment is what we are learning to be with whatever it is and it's okay to be with it because it's honest and true. Not for any other reason. Sometimes we, we touch deep places inside of us and the whole relationship to the world of objects and things starts to change. If you change inside, your world changes because your world, our world, is related to the perceiver of the world. Those who see the world in one way because the perceptions show the world in one way and those who experience the world in another way because he or she or they perceive it in another way. And so sometimes in that we 
have, as I said, divided our world up into our likes and our dislikes, into our pleasures and our pains. And sometimes we're probing deeper and deeper into the psyche, deeper and deeper into consciousness there. That changing of consciousness is changing our world as we know it. And sometimes in that, some extraordinary thing that something called happiness begins to come out of the consciousness. And it begins to suffuse what we see and what we hear and what we smell and what we taste and what we touch. And there's a sensitivity which from the happiness inside begins to come out through the senses. And so one has looked at one's existence deep within oneself. One has touched that sense of spaciousness which is there as our birthright. One has acknowledged that if spaciousness is authentic, it will allow stuff to move through because it has to move through that spaciousness. But that very depth of that spaciousness also, it allows happiness to move through. And one wonders in the mystical nature of things, how is it that this happiness moves through? What is this strange thing that goes on inside of a human being which one says the stuff moves through, the pains, the fears, the negativities, the jealousies, the angers, the aggression, say, oh yes, I, can, I know all of that. I can see, I recognize that because it's got to do with old patterns, it's got to do with my past and how I was and, and all the things that happened to me. And I can see all that with that stuff that's coming through. It, that stuff never, ever could run as deep as spaciousness. How could it? And yet when one is going deeper and deeper and that stuff still occurring, still, as it were, occupying space. And yet in that spaciousness in which the stuff isn't moving, where is this happiness coming from? How come that there are human beings, men and women on this earth, who live a life of presence, who live a life of simplicity, who live a, a life of sensitivity and connectedness, who live what you and I would describe and do describe as a spacious life in their spirit and in their way. And this, where is this happiness coming from that suffuses this spaciousness? Despite anything and everything. Sometimes we look deeply into the, the remarkable condition and circumstances that you and I as human beings have and share, share together on this earth. We look so deeply into these things that we don't even have to say to ourselves, oh, I must be less attached to this. I must be less identified with him or her or them. I must be less... Uh, caught up and less desirous and less of this and less of, of that. Or one says, I must be more of this, more sensitive or more vulnerable or more aware or more meditative or whatever that might be. And we're constantly, unfortunately, viewing ourselves and being told 
by people who ought to know better, to viewing ourselves in terms of less of this and more of that. And the poor mind, hearing these messages, goes back and forth, pulls back and forth between the two, less of this and more of that. And all that we can say is, all that there is. And if that, what there is, is that stuff moving around and all the complications and the difficulties, if that's what there is, then let it be, that's what it is. And, it, and if it's not there and there's a, and there's a, a spaciousness there and a, a presence which is there, if that's what it is, then that's what it is. And as I say, sometimes in that spaciousness, this extraordinary thing of happiness, the human birthright again, which is flowing through, it's like the interest in holding and possessiveness and attachment and wanting and desiring and pursuing and egotisms and all of that. The interest in that seems so shallow and superficial, not because you or I have had to work it all out and look at our ego and our identification or whatever, but simply because something else has touched us. Something else from where we know not what we know not and that made the difference and there hasn't had to be all the working out and doing years and years and years of meditation practice and listening to teachings and following gurus and all of those distractions. <laughs> so let's say those moments, those periods, and it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's just a a rather apparently short-lived moment which occurs. But those moments of being touched by something other. We might say, otherwise. Otherwise. That when we are wise to that which is other. Not trying to find out why that is like that, we're trying to find out where that came from and to put a name to it or a location to it or a, a background or a history or a source or whatever and then the mind trying to, as it were, get behind the happiness. The mind trying to do the impossible of getting behind that spaciousness which, which accommodates the mind. mind can never get behind. And sometimes we, we, we see the whole structure of our mind and the humility that is required for all of this because the mind can never get back to the source. The mind can never get to that happiness. The mind can never get to that spaciousness and therefore the mind is humbled in the presence of it. Humbled by all this living experience. Has no answer to it. And then we begin to understand what truth is beyond the mind. What, what, what realization is beyond the mind. 
but then we understand that easily what no mind means or transcending mind and body means because the mind knows its humility of which it cannot get back to the source cannot get behind that, that awareness cannot get behind that spaciousness behind that happiness and behind that which is truly unnameable and then mind and body fit into that then where is this birth and death where is this coming and going where is this this beginning and ending where is this changing impermanence and continuity and discontinuity and all of that it's not for one who knows that which is not of mind and body May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings know the happiness of awakening. So let us have two or three quiet minutes together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.